The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. talking uh, this afternoon about the whole issue of counseling and personal problems and psychotherapy and and personality theories and that sort of thing. Now, if if you've you've ever been in a a library, you'll realize that there are literally hundreds of yards in a big research library on this topic. So here we have one brief hour to talk about things that have vexed the uh, entirety of the 20th century. So uh, grant me the the grace of knowing that we're going to paint with uh, you know, not just a big brush, but a, uh, a roller, you know, painted massive broad strokes here. Yeah. Let me just say one personal word. Before, I'll, I'll get a, I've got an extended outline here, but let me say a personal word as I uh, get it before we get into this. Um, I, I came to Christ in a context of being, I would say, a true believer. This is the end of this message. This series continues on the next cassette. This tape has been produced by Westminster Media. All rights reserved. be helpful to people that those things essentially were offered by by the secular mental health professions and uh, and I was going to be part of that and uh, was actually converted to Christ uh, while working in a psychiatric hospital in my own intent planning to go on in clinical psychology and become a, a, a doctoral student there and uh, and then radically rerouted by uh, first at the most fundamental level personally rerouted to come to know the living God and then as that worked out as I came to understand the implications of thinking in a coherent, presuppositionally consistent way about the Christian faith, realizing that we as Christians have a whole better, uh, more profound, more insightful way of looking at the nature of people and their problems and at the sorts of solutions. So I come at this issue not just as a, in a, in a sense that it's of theoretical interest, but one that um, I'm convinced both personally as well as in looking at forces in our culture, these issues are big, they're important. Um, so I want to talk about the relationship between a, a biblically consistent Christianity and the modern psychologies. And uh, now let me let me qualify that last word for a second. When I say psychologies, in no way are we critiquing the notion of psychology in general. The sense of you know that uh, we are we have a soul, and that soul has there's thoughts and there's emotions, there's volitions, there's things going on. Every one of us ought to be a psychologist in the best sense of the word. You know, we ought to, it's simply a way of saying we ought to study the soul. We ought to know people. We ought to know what makes people tick. What we're critiquing are the organized systems, uh, the, 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 the different interpretations that have been placed that, uh, on the human soul, the personality theories, the psychotherapies, which, is, which are ways of taking those theories and you might almost say uh, bringing to bear pastoral ministry to communicate a certain vision of what is true about persons. Those are the things where biblical Christianity, in a certain sense, has a, you might say, has a superior psychology, a superior psychotherapy, uh, one that uh, subjects the, the competitors to a radical critique. But uh, that's prelude of things to come. Let's, let's jump in. I'm going to move in two basic directions here. Uh, initially, as you see the heading there, considering our historical moment, make some comments, more historical comments, and then secondly, moving to how do we engage 
our moment with the resources of a presuppositionally consistent Christianity. So let's jump in on the, mom on the historical moment. Um, number one, right on the surface of it, Christianity has a self-conscious competitor. Um, Self-proclaimed competitor uh, has arrived on the stage in the 20th century and said basically that the resources of the Christian faith have run out of gas. They are no longer compelling to, to modern human beings. They no longer answer or address the needs and struggles of, of life lived. And that what is needed is a different, is a different vision, uh, a different scripture, if you will, a different truth, and, and a different pastorate, a different set of people to cure souls. Um, it, it's, it's not as though, um, say, a place like Westminster, which is very concerned to, to think biblically, it's not as though we are simply just being reactive or feisty or wanting to be argumentative. The, the assault has come in the first place from the other side and the, uh, in a very self-conscious way. And I've, just, I've given you some representative quotations here that uh, uh, um, we could have picked a hundred others. These happen to be particularly uh, to the point. Sigmund Freud in the first place. The word secular pastoral worker might well serve as a general formula for describing the function which the analyst, whether he is doctor or a layman, has to perform in his relation to the public. You see what Freud's saying there? That that our function is fundamentally a pastoral worker. And you notice how, there how Freud, and this is one of, the, one of the places where Freud's followers have really ditched a key part of his vision. He, Freud put no stress at all that a doctor needed to do psychoanalysis. Anyone could. In fact, one of his leading disciples, Eric Erickson, was an artist. He's not a doctor at all. It, uh, Freud was essentially saying that the role of a psychotherapist is a pastoral worker, a secular one, because we now live in an age in which God is no longer credible, post-enlightenment sort of age. And yet people still have the same problems, which we would denominate sin and misery, that they've always had. Somebody has to, to do the pastoral work to cure souls. For the second, Carl Jung, uh, initially a, a disciple of Freud, then broke away. Patients force the psychotherapist into the role of a priest and expect and demand of him that he shall free them from their distress. That is why we psychotherapists must occupy ourselves with problems which, strictly speaking, belong to the theologian. Here's Carl Jung, modern man in search of a soul, again, frankly stating, the old truths of Christianity no longer carry the freight, and that there's a vacuum of meaning in the modern world, a spiritual vacuum, and the psychotherapist is the one who is now designated to provide meaning, uh, freedom from distress, uh, and so forth. A, a form of spirituality, even, that is a, is a, from our point of view as Christians, a godless, Christless, spiritless, wordless, spirituality. Abraham Maslow, humanistic psychology. This is the opening, opening salvo of Toward a Psychology of Being, Maslow's uh, greatest book. Human nature seems not to be intrinsically or primarily or necessarily evil. Now that's, that's straight in our faces, isn't it? You know, who is he talking to here? He's talking to you. He's talking to me. He's talking to Ecclesiastes 9.3 that says that, uh, that the, uh, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and there is madness in their hearts while they live and then they die. That, that very bleak description of human nature in its fallenness that uh, where, where Christians have said that there is a, an inertial drift towards what the scriptures call sin, an inertial drift away from God. And we would say even that the very theories that are here are affected in their theory building by that inertial drift away from God. Um, Maslow comes right out and says, no, this isn't true. Or here's B.F. Skinner in his uh, utopian novel. 
what Jesus offered in return for loving one's enemies was heaven on earth, better known as peace of mind. Well, you could have fooled me. <laughs> I would certainly say peace of mind is a byproduct of what Jesus offers. But um, the Jesus that, that we believe in uh, was not just simply offering a technology, a set of tricks that make you a relaxed, confident human being, was he? B.F. Skinner thinks that there's a, there's a technology of, that will address the human dilemma. And he can arrange the contingencies of reinforcement in such a way that we can create contented, happy, productive, uh, adjusted people. Um, right in our face. Uh, and, the, and the whole structure of uh, Walden II is, a, it is an alternative church, an alternative savior, an alternative gospel. Or here's a little more contemporary. Uh, pop psychologist John Bradshaw. Uh, if you watch any channel, uh, 12, uh, PBS, Bradshaw is the guru. At, uh, whenever they do fundraisers, they have Bradshaw days because he is the hottest program they have ever run here over the last seven, eight years. And uh, what does John Bradshaw say? Come, it comes at us as a psychologist, but, this, but he is a religionist, isn't he? G Jesus calls us to creativity and our own unique I amness. Today I know at the deepest level that I am I, a wondrous person. I'm essentially an I am inside, and then brutal life experiences, being uh, persecuted or abused or misunderstood or mistreated, have somehow poisoned that wonderful I amness that I am by nature. And my goal is then to get back in touch with my I amness and to actualize that. And this is this is not uh, uh, the sort of neutral science uh, out there. Uh, uh, studying the world. These are, these are religionists in a very self-conscious way. In sum, psychotherapists are secular priests. It's the phrase from Perry London, a, a very influential uh, uh, commentator on modern psychotherapy, um, historian and commentator. And the more self-conscious freely acknowledge this rule. Uh, the next sentence is more mine. More pointedly, they are secular prophet theologians. They are, they are people giving a meaning to life, explaining life, making sense of life. They are secular priest pastors, shepherding the human soul. They are secular king elders, administering the institutions of the care of souls, administering the uh, mental health centers, the counseling uh, offices, the psychiatric hospitals, and so forth. Given the stated intentions of 20th century psychologists, one would expect that the that the church would, would, would rise up and there would be conflict. There would be in a, that in the very first place there would be a conflict between biblical Christianity and people who are saying of themselves, we will, we will replace you, we will bury you. Um, three levels of conflict. Question of truth, question of love, the question of power. Who is right? Who is right in their diagnosis of the human condition? Is it true that Human beings are not primarily evil, but are fundamentally, to follow Maslow out, the, uh, the, the ruination of our souls and the, and the sin and misery of our lives is a product of unmet needs that we are somehow trampled on by forces outside of us. Therefore, whatever is evil is only a product of what happened to me. Is that true? Or is, Christ, is the Christian vision true? There, there, we would expect a fundamental conflict in the understanding of people and their problems. Second area of conflict, who has the right to work with people? Who has the call to love? Whose responsibility is it to reach out and to help people who are struggling, broken, confused, baffled, battered, tangled, miserable, wandering sheep? Uh, who has the social authority? Whose charge is it to reach out in love?
to the uh, to a broken world. Um, and the church has always said that's our charge, you know, both diaconally and and and, and ministries of, the, of mercy and ministries of the word are to meet and address the sin and misery of this world. Um, we'd expect a competition. And thirdly, who can make it right? The question of of pragmatic authority. Who can back up their claims of power? Who can actually make a difference in the lives of people? We'd expect that there would be a, uh, again, a, uh, a budding, a certain budding of heads that would take place here. Um, let me throw in one other comment here before switching gears. Um, many times we think of uh, the social roles of, say, of the mental health professions as though those were always so, as though what it means to be a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a social worker is something that just has always been. But these, these, are th- these are things that have radically transmuted themselves over the course of the 20th century. Uh, they are not givens. Uh, the whole notion that there's a mental health profession that does pastoral type work, that makes pronouncements about the human condition, that is a, a relatively new development. A hundred years ago, a psychiatrist did no therapy, did no pastoral work. The psychiatrist was in the first place an administrator. A psychiatrist ran a big institution, and his main responsibilities were to provide safety, three square meals a day, uh, a beautiful environment out in the country, uh, all these Byberry or Norristown, these were all country back then. They were places where people could work in the fields, the birds would sing, the sun was shining, and people had basically fallen apart, would have a chance to, in a sense, get their hands dirty, be in a nice environment, get, a, get freedom from the stresses of life, and get their lives back together. Essentially, they were administrators who were meant to provide a good milieu. In the second place, they were medical doctors. So if there were some distinctive medical component going on, you know, the, uh, uh, the uh, insanities tied to alcoholism or syphilis, or uh, if there were brain tumors that could be, could be discovered, there's essentially at least a medical diagnosis, conceivably some kind of alleviating treatment. It's only, it was only subsequent to Freud's visit, first visit, in the, in, in, the, in the early 1900s, that the psychotherapeutic role started to become attached to that administrative medical role. Um, psychiatrists, the, the meaning of the word is often switched. And in fact, to this day, it, it, that, that word, it, th- these terms are, have an ambiguity. Uh, psychiatrists over the last 20 years have re- actually retreated more back to their more medical, somatic, biological heart, homeland, you might call it, as many other practitioners, psychologists, social workers, pastoral counselors have, have given them flack and questioned their domination of the therapeutic, uh, uh, the pastoral, the cool pastoral counseling world. Um, so, that, so these terms are fluid. A social worker, what was a social worker? A hundred years ago, a social worker was a charity worker. A social worker went into neighborhoods and helped, helped establish that there was pure milk so that babies wouldn't be poisoned. She helped uh, help nursing mothers, help with pre- prenatal care, help with community conditions, help battle injustice, uh, help with tenement conditions. The social work was essentially oriented towards those good works, uh, more a helps ministry. The notion of a counseling role for a, so- for a social worker did not come to the 1920s. And in the 1920s, uh, there started a, a great controversy within social work. It actually continues to this day, where social work institutions Usually they opt for one or the other emphasis. Sometimes they have both. It's very clear. Some are more community organizing, community work, job placement, housing conditions, and then this more psychotherapeutic role. Continues to be attention even within the field. A psychologist, 100 years ago, a psychologist did nothing remotely connected to psychotherapy, remotely connected to counseling. 
a psychotherapist, a psychologist, was a scientist. Basically, a, it was is a physiologist, physiological research. So, looking at things like uh, the reflex arc, you know, you poke your finger with a pin, and how does the the electrical impulse travel so that you pull it back? Those were the kinds of things. It was a biological psychology that was uh, experimental psychology that was ex was essentially at the heart of the psychologist's role. World War One, the role started to broaden, and psychologists took on a testing role. Uh, the military was, in, you know, four million people drafted into the army. How can we make sure we get the round pegs in the round holes and not into the square holes? And so with all the influence of intelligence testing, placement testing, aptitude testing, that expanded the role. It was really not until post-World War II that psychologists became clinical psychologists, became psychotherapists, became those who, who did much counseling. These things are not givens. They're things that have a, they have a, they have a history they have a historical moment. There are, and in fact, in the best analyses of that, those the advance, the psycho, the advance of the mental health professions into psychotherapy, is bears this inverse relationship with what the church has done, and with the with the weak. As those things have advanced, it's been correlated to weaknesses in the church in its face-to-face -face pastoral care. And one of the things that I'm convinced of is that uh, we as Christians have a wealth of what it means to do face-to-face -face ministry that really understands people, digs into their lives patiently, helpfully, with love, with truth. Um, we have a wealth there that, uh, that has been barely tapped. Um, that's point one. On the surface, a competitor. Point two, dark side, the church has been intellectually derivative, structurally subordinate, practically weak. Now you see that each of those, in terms of the question of truth, the church has tended to subordinate itself and view that we essentially we must learn things from Adler, from Freud, from Skinner, from uh, Rogers, from Jung. Uh, they have the big truth. They're the people that really know people. We are subordinate. We, we defer to them intellectually. The church has been structurally subordinate. Um, the church, in, in, in many cases, has been reduced to being a source of referrals, a source of, you know, okay, the church is fine for holding hands and and uh, someone's grieving, you can kind of be along with them, but anything more serious, the church's role is to refer to the professionals who really know what they are doing, structurally subordinate. And practically weak, the church's practical theology and face-to-face -face ministry has typically been pitiful, would probably be the best word, that, that at, at one end, tending to be superficial, uh, moralistic, just say no, um, have your quiet time, go to church, all your problems will go away. At the other end, a kind of, of spiritual quick fix. Uh, have the mountaintop experience with Jesus, uh, let go and let God, cast out the demon of anger, and in one dramatic act, all your problems will be solved. All of the things in the middle, all the, the really heart-searching, how do we know ourselves, what's true about people, how do you love people, how do you climb into their lives, how do you work patiently with them, those sorts of things have tended to be seized by the other professions, and the church has been uh, has been in a uh, a very second-rate position. Um, I'll give you a couple of quotations from a uh, sociologist of, of the professions who who analyzed this whole the way the church receded as the as the mental health profession seized ground. Um, a man named Andrew Abbott is his he cited later. Uh, he's, he's talking about the late 19th century. Clergy analysis remained primitive. The gradual recognition of personal problems as legitimate categories of professional work did not bring a serious clergy effort to conceptualize them. 
The clergy's failure to provide any academic foundation for their practice with personal problems ultimately proved their undoing. If another profession should establish relevant diagnostic and therapeutic systems and legitimate these in terms of general values, the clergy's simple-minded cultural jurisdiction would be easily usurped. In the period after 1880, that's exactly what happened. And then Abbott goes on to analyze it after, that by the 1920s, he talks about the clergy as the losers, uh, and that, that by the 1920s, they had lost any vestige of real cultural authority over personal problems. The church was not seen as those who had the deep searching answers. Uh, the church was, you might say, squeezed out to these fringes of, of pietism and, and moralism. Um, just a striking quotation here from Abbott, is he's talking about the 20s. There emerged in this period uh, the clinical pastoral education movement, a pastoral training movement aiming to give young clergymen direct experience with the newly defined personal problems. And get this, get this sentence. Seminarians would learn the rudiments of human nature from psychiatrists, psychologists, and social workers who, and this is Abbott's quotes, who, quote, knew those rudiments. That is, from the professionals who currently controlled the definitions of them. I see what he's saying there is that there, was, there were claims made that were able to be sustained, and the church bought it, the culture bought it. The people who knew human nature were the mental health professions, and the church now had to go to secularists to find out the rudiments of human nature. Um, very striking analysis of our historical situation. Um, that next, uh, uh, one of the ways I've thought about this would be to say that we lost our heartland. The heartland when it came to people, the heartland of people and the reality of what's going on with people and how do you help people and how do you understand them and, and let's get our hands dirty with real life, real people, real problems. That heartland became the province of essentially secular professions and the church was squeezed out to the margins. And, uh, the heartland are these things I, you know, I list a slew of them over the over the page, that page and onto the next one. Um, the issue of, of say self-deception. Who talked about that? Well, Freud talked about that. Anna Freud talked about it. Defense mechanisms. It's just the people who really studied what ultimately, biblically, is the deceitfulness of sin. Yet the profound analyses of that phenomenon all retooled to, to fit in a different different worldview, not done by Christians. The impact of our situations, traumas suffering, being sinned against, abuse, uh, the, more, the more sort of the way life can come at you with a knife on it, with a knife. The more subtle things, social shaping, the influence of models, socio-cultural conditioning. These are things the Bible is about. And this is, just, this is just bedrock biblical stuff. We're talking about the influence of the world. We're talking about enemies, about oppressors, about being sinned against. The real detailed looking at those things taken by other people. Motives. Why do people do what they do? How do we take apart their belief system? their cravings, their fears, what makes people tick, their identity, the workings of the conscience. Again, uh, other, these, are, these are the themes and the, and the issues that have become essentially the province of different people besides the church. The notion of progressive change, interpersonal conflict, child during communication, addictive behaviors, all the negative emotions, you know, grief or guilt or anxiety or depression, anger, fear, aging, death, dying. These are things that scripture is about, aren't they? But these are the things that have become the province of mental health professions where the truth, the love, the power 
in all these issues, the people who really know what's going on, study it and explain it, the people who are mandated to love and care and help, the people who are seen to make a difference, again, not the church. And essentially, as, uh, out at the margins of significant discourse, it seems to me that the church, on the one hand, is seen to be basically externalistic, and on the other hand, to be uh, sort of mystically internalistic. Maybe I could call it superficially, superficially externalistic, mystically internalistic. And so the things that are associated with us as Bible-believing Christians, on the one hand would be uh, uh, just rationalistic, uh, have good doctrine, you know, or moralistic. Do this, do that, be good boys and girls, have your quiet time, everything's going to be okay. Uh, volitionalistic, that uh, by some uh, just say no act of willpower, somehow life's going to be better. And so the 20th century looks at human life and it says, this stuff doesn't work. The church is irrelevant. The church is, is essentially the shell of, uh, sort of a pharisaic shell. The real profound issues that are going on in the human soul, the, the people who are grappling with that are the psychologists. They're the ones who are thoughtful there. On the other hand, the church is seen as, in a sense, too internal. So, the, so a, a, uh, you know, a pietistic, uh, a mountaintop, a let go, let God, a cast out a demon, some sort of pietistic, a uh, quick fix to the human dilemma is seen as, as what the church has to offer. Now, I would say all the good stuff in the middle is what the Bible is actually about, isn't it? That the Bible itself is a sharp critic of these sorts of things. The Bible itself is a sharp critic of these sorts of things. This is not to say that, there, that within the, the heartland circle is true piety and true morals and true doctrine. But those things are woven, true piety and morals and doctrine are woven, the making of choices, uh, spiritual experience, these things are woven into the realities of child rearing and your motives and what happened to you and what kind of world do you live in and what's the world doing as it comes at you and what about it, you know, being drunks or being sex addicts or whatever it is, abusing food, being gluttons. Uh, uh, this is the stuff that scripture is fundamentally about. Um, now, it seems to me that our task as Christians is how do we, how do we reclaim the heartland? You know, how do we reclaim and readdress these issues, the significant discourse about people, their problems, how to help them, how to love them, how to engage them, uh, these sorts of things. Um, the, uh, <coughs> I give you a... Uh, um, I'll give you a couple of references there, uh, the Andrew Abbott. Uh, by the way, some of these are, there's a, that, that book of readings that, he, that uh, Brian waved. It's got these articles in it, um, if you're interested in further reading. Um, brings us to the third point. Our historical moment has opportunities for us. There are opportunities for us, I think, to powerfully re-engage. And I'll, I'll talk about these from two angles. The first one being a more general cultural analysis, the second one more presuppositional. Just within the culture, I think that the, the psychotherapies are vulnerable to a thoughtful Christian critique for a number of reasons. One reason is that there is, has been a radical and increasing fragmentation in the 20th century psychologies as the 20th century has proceeded. So the claim that somehow this is truth, this is in, in the, you know, the revelation of our day, this is science, this is the truth. That claim is increasingly unsupportable, just empirically. You know, where you get 
proliferating systems mutually contradicting each other. There are, in fact, there is not such a thing as psychology. There are psychologies. And to the degree that there are psychologies, the truth claims are hard to sustain, aren't they? Psychologies that themselves have internecine warfare uh, w with each other, opposing. Uh, I can put Freud, Jung, Maslow, Skinner all, in a, all in, a, in a row here, but each one of them sharply disagrees with all the others. And uh, it, 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 uh, that very fact is, uh, is something that has become more obvious as the century has unfolded. Another factor that, uh, is that, that, that opens up questions there have been very sharp critiques of the, of the mental health professions from historians and, so, and, and philosophers of science and medicine. Uh, so, for example, uh, one, of the, one of the profound themes that, that has, been, has received a lot of ink has been secular people concerned about the medicalization of problems of living, the medicalization of life. And what are the implications if crime or drunkenness or childhood you know, dysfunctions and such. If those are seen as medical disorders and not as fundamentally moral issues. Uh, people that are thinking people about the nature of justice, the nature of law, the nature of public morals, the nature of, nature of civil life are profoundly concerned about that medicalization of things that are behavioral uh, types of things. Um, historians of science, two most influential over the last 30 years have been Thomas Kuhn and Karl Popper. Both these men, uh, uh, profound analyses of the nature of science, neither of them believed that psychology was a science. They believed that it was more akin to myth and to philosophy and to religion and to politics. And it was something that was intrinsically debatable because you were dealing with, frankly, worldview moral issues and uh, had no claims in Kuhn and Popper's uh, mentality to being science. Um, I've, I've given another citation there uh, by a historian of medicine, Charles Rosenberg, uh, probably the leading historian of medicine in the country at this point. Um, Rosenberg, uh, a secular Jew, a friend to psychiatry from a certain point of view, radical critique of psychi psychiatry's legitimacy within the culture. He bases it on three things. He says, first of all, psychiatry as a medical specialty is in deep trouble because its claim to be you know, the, the good, the true, and the beautiful hinges on it being seen as a medical science. And yet, right within medicine, many doctors are highly dubious. They view it more like witch doctors that somehow got in the, got in the camp of the hard sciences. So right within its, 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 uh, the place where, it's try where it, need it needs to be seen as medicine to be legitimate, it's, it's, it's uh, under fire from, it, from its fellows. Um, second thing that, that Rosenberg points out is a very curious thing within psychiatry itself that those aspects of psychiatry which are closest to medicine, um, the treating of uh, end-state AIDS patients and the psychoses that happen, the treating of, of uh, brain tumors, the treating of, uh, of Alzheimer's and other and dementias that can arise, those things that have the most clear physiological component within the profession are the lowest status. They're the, lowest, they're, they're the, they're the mental hospital stuff. They're the, the nursing home stuff. They're just the care, their psychiatry is a caretaking profession like it was in the 19th century. The things in psychiatry that are high status are, uh, and these are Rosenberg's, uh, these are Rosenberg's words, um, much of our century's most influential psychiatric writing has consisted of general statements about the human condition. This is Freud, this is Jung, this is Maslow, this is Skinner. Essentially what he's saying is, 
psychiatry as theology, psychiatry as public philosophy, psychiatry as the meaning of life, and that those claims are highly dubious. And so you've got a profession where the thing that most legitimates it, we are medical science, is, 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 is looked down on. The thing that is the most attractive and alluring to be the arbiters of reality to a culture is the most debatable, because essentially they're competing with other religions, other worldviews. And then Rosenberg's third point is that uh, within society at large, the, the, med the mental health professions have been handed this vast turf, everything from child rearing to criminality, juvenile delinquency, as well as just the aches and pains of daily life, anxiety, worry, depression, anger, interpersonal conflict. And they just can't deliver. They can't deliver the answer because what they are dealing with, as we look at as Christians, is, is sin and misery. It's the, the, the blackness of life on, on a planet that, uh, that, that lives in the dark here. And uh, uh, Rosenberg talks about what he calls the embittering gap between expectation and performance. So the society expects psychiatry to provide the answers to juvenile delinquency, to provide the answers to being anxious or depressed or having no meaning in your life. And there's this embittering gap because it never quite delivers. Um, historical comments, I think, I think give us some fresh opportunities. I think we've also got an opportunity in that the biblical faith really can be articulated to retake the heartland. The things that are in the heartland are what biblical Christianity is about. And I'm convinced, and this is, one of the, this is one of the real treats of working at Westminster, one of the whole treats of this community, is to be part of a project to seek, essentially, to do that. That, uh, that, that human experience to the de in the details is, uh, is stuff that Scripture will address. And we have the opportunity to present a distinctively Christian alternative into the world that we live in. Um, now let's think about that, you know, engaging our historical moment with the resources of a presuppositionally consistent Christianity. Um, let, me, let me jump in. Let me start at this by, by giving you a metaphor that I think captures some of the dilemma. Um, and, I and I play with that old, that old parable about the five blind men and the elephant, you know, which probably most of us have heard. And it's, uh, you know, this guy thinks it's a wall because he's on the side, and the guy that's got the trunk thinks it's a snake. No, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a rope, you know, the guy that's got the tail, and the one that's got the leg says, it's a tree, I've got the tree trunk here, and the one that has the ear says, no, it's a, it's a big leaf. And that, that little parable has often been used to comment on the, the role of, of pre-commitments in our seeing, the, the, the role of presuppositions. The way I play, the way I play with that, uh, that little parable is to alter it in a couple of ways. Um, imagine that, it's th that the blind men aren't quite blind, but with a blind man are they've got tunnel vision and severe astigmatism at the same time and they are but there they are and, and let's take the guy that's uh, got the tree trunk he is right up close he cares about tree trunks he's he's examining it he's poking into it and that what he does is produces this extremely learned treatise on the nature of tree bark and the bark beetles that inhabit that bark and bore into it and seemed to cause the tree some distress. And, he, and a treatise on how when you stick a sharp object into the bark, red sap comes gushing out rhythmically for some reason. We can't quite figure out why it's rhythmical, but, but tree, trees seem to have this red sap that comes out. And let's also, and then he has a theory that explains why periodically the tree like up and moves. And doesn't, that seems contradictory to what we know of trees, and yet it seems like the tree is moving. And you get this 300-page treatise that just 
analyzes in minute detail and talks about what kind of poultices you can put on to stop the, the sap flow and, and what kind of things you can try rub in the, what creams you can rub in the, in the bark that can make the bark beetles uh, die and stop bothering the tree so much. And you look at that from a Christian point of view and, and here's, where the plot, here's where the plot thickens. Imagine that as Christians, we've stood 40 feet away from the elephant and we're over here saying, it's an elephant. It's an elephant. It's an elephant. You know, it's man in the image of God, sinners against the living God, redeemable in Christ, able to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we never knew that the legs bled. You know, we never knew anything about the bugs in the knees. You know, there in the folds of the skin. We didn't even know that the skin had folds because we're sent so far away from the critter that we just haven't been in there getting our hands. We haven't cared to get in there and try to figure out. Well, how do I help? How do I get my hands dirty? How do I, you really bring salve to this, you know, the bleeding knees of this, uh, of this elephant? I think that captures something of the, of the dilemma because you look at that and you say, well, on the one hand, is for me as a Christian, I'm incredibly challenged by that person who is swarming all over the beast there 40 paces away. And I never knew anything about, you know, the, the liquid came out of the knees. I never knew anything about little bugs that were there. And yet at the same time you say, but it's nuts. It's, it's, it's so perceptive, it's so provocative, and it is totally wrong. And it's perceptiveness and provocativeness challenges me, reproves me, forces me to go back and do my homework and do my digging theologically, forces me to go and be challenged to get involved in ministry. And, and yet the fact that it is so wrong makes me utterly upset. I mean, how can you say it's a tree? You know, that's not sap, that's blood. You know, that's not bark beetles, those are lice. That's not bark, that's, that's skin. It's an elephant, it's not a tree. That dilemma, I think, captures something of, the, uh, uh, of where we as Christians stand with relation to the social sciences. So on the one hand, and I, and I hope this comes through, there's going to be, in, the, in, a Christian point, in a Christian engagement with our times, a radical critique of psychotherapeutic systems, psychological systems. They are wrong. And they're all committed to be wrong because they're committed in every single one is committed to, in the last analysis, say, people are not sinners. People can be explained by, in some way or other, what happens to us. So whether it's a humanistic theory that would say, your needs were not met by primary caretakers, or whether it's a psychodynamic theory that would say, the trauma that you endured as a child has, has, has determined your life, or whether it's a behavioral theory that would say, you were somehow conditioned by sociocultural forces to be the kind of person you are. Or you could go on and say, I mean, the, the, uh, uh, whether it's a physiological theory that would say, basically, uh, you can explain the problems of living by recourse to genetics, to uh, physiology, neurophysiology, uh, chemical imbalance, those sorts of things. In a sense, every one of them is committed to define people in a way where Christ, a savior, will not be the answer. That's the noetic effects of sin that, uh, that Van Til has so, per so perceptively alerted us to see Systems are not neutral. People are, if indeed real people are, are always doing something with God, and I create a system of interpretation which thinks I can rule God out from the, from the get-go, I am committing myself to a fundamental and pervasive error right out of the starting gate. And yet, on the other hand, so there's a, a feistiness and a, and a vigor and a critique that we as Christians bring to the culture. On the other hand, you can see that there's a kind of humility loop that we're put in, because there's a recognition we have failed. You know, we have failed as a church. And the, the 20th century is a sad tale 
of the church's inability to grapple with reality uh, and to, to grapple with what's honestly going on with people and to be willing to get in there, get hands dirty, and minister pastorally with patience and perceptiveness. And all too often, the sense that people have had about what the Christian, what the Christian faith offers to, trouble, to, the, to the woes of mankind are these things and these things, and rarely that there is a significant address to all that stuff in the middle. He's got about a 70-page section of that book that is one of the finest descriptions of total depravity that I've ever read. Now, Alfred Adler doesn't believe in total depravity. He doesn't believe in sin. But he takes apart things right down to like why people pick their noses. I mean, he's just getting into the, the dirt of life and just taking apart all... He's just looking at the, the tricks and the chaos and the, and the self-centeredness and all this. And he cares about it. He, he describes things, he cares about them, but here's another one of these ways where Van Til's fundamental insight about the noetic effects of sin, the distorting pervasive effect, these, these things are not just there hanging in space as, as good things, good nuggets, you might say, to plunder. Because what Adler or anyone else is describing and caring about is, is controlled by a grid. It's controlled by a framework. It's controlled by this person's presuppositions. And that, that effect, even on description, even on quote the data, quote the facts, there's at least three different things that are simultaneously going on in that. Um, that interpretive grid, the, the worldview, and it's everything from his view of God, his view of human nature, what people ought to be like, uh, thus your diagnostic of how they fall short, the view of how change takes place, all of those presuppositions tailor even what's seen out there in the world. Because that man sees trees, doesn't he? He sees bark. He sees beetles. He sees sap. And, I, and there's three, three verbs that I think describe the effect of those presuppositions. One, and this is the most positive thing I think we can say about it, it has a magnifying effect. It, it is as though what that, what that guy with tunnel vision and astigmatism does, it's almost like he's got a, a microscope glued to his eye. And so there are things where, as he looks closely into the knees of that elephant, there are things that that person sees that nobody else may have ever seen before. You know, just, just phenomenal detail about human life. There's a magnifying effect. Simple example. If someone is committed to a theory that our problems are all caused by childhood trauma, they're going to just put the magnifying glass, the, the microscope on, every single thing that ever happened to you in your past. And we'll just dig and dig and dig and dig and dig into any kind of traumatic, hurtful event. And there will be, uh, there'll be reams of stuff that will come out about how people have been hurt or stepped on or abused or maligned or mistreated or lied to or led astray or whatever. But that's, that's one thing. You know, there's a, in a sense, the richness descriptively comes by that magnifying effect that a theory gives you. But the theory also has a blinkering effect. While it sees certain things, you know, if you've got a microscope glued on your eye, there's lots of things you don't see. There's lots of things you miss. So, for example, this person with a theory of, of the determinative effect of childhood experience may, may see that this, this person who right now is anxious and depressed and angry and abuses food and, and sleeps around with people to try to get love, and they may see that there were all these... Um, terrible things that happened to that person. But what they're blinkered from is seeing 
That's person A. But they blink her out. Here's person B, who had a very different upbringing, who had wonderful experiences, who was brought up, was treated well, uh, was, was treated with kindness, was respected, was not mistreated in, in any uh, significant manner. And yet that person has the same problems. That person also misuses food in some way. That person also has sexual and moral thoughts or actions. That person also has anger, anxiety. And so the blinkering means that, that you, you exclude things that would actually force you to revise your interpretation. Um, yeah. And then there's person C who was abused, mocked, betrayed, and they turned out good. How do you explain, you know, how do you explain the Lord Jesus Christ on a theory that betrayal and abuse control your life, being lied about and so forth? The, uh, that, that blinkering effect must rule out many other pieces of a comprehensive view of human life. Then the most ominous, the third one, is that there's also a pervasive distorting effect. And we already saw that in the very uh, metaphor that I used, that here I'm writing this incredibly profound treatise with a wealth of observational detail, but it's all about trees, not elephants. There's a pervasive, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a colored lens put on the end of that, that magnifying glass. So I see everything as, as rose, or everything as green, or everything as, as yellow. I don't see, I don't see the, what, the color that things truly are, pervasive distortions. The presuppositions control, in a fundamental way, the descriptive stuff. And then they control the implications, the psychotherapy, or whatever other, the parenting, uh, the, the psychotherapy, the parenting, the, uh, how you're supposed to resolve problems, whatever else is seen. As, as that. Um, that too is control. And uh, the, the uh, phrase that uh, Jay Adams used is very, very uh, apropos here, that, that, in, that inter explanations are signposts for solutions. The way that I explain something will tell me what to do about it. So if I say, if my interpretive grid is that you with your anger problem have a demon of anger, what do you do about demons of anger? You cast out demons of anger. If I say that you with your anger problem have a, um, that your needs for love were not met in childhood, what do you do about that? Well, I try to meet your needs for love now. So I try to create a structure where we can reparent you and nourish you and in a sense fill up your love tank. If I think that your, your anger problem now is because you um, uh, have certain cognitive distortions that distort the way you interpret your world, what will I do about it? Well, I will seek to change your cognitions, to change the way you interpret your world. If I think that the reason you do what you, that you're angry is that you're an Aries with Jupiter rising and March is a bad month for Aries, I will tell you to lie low during times when your sign... It's a, the interpretive grid guides you for what kinds of answers, therapy, solutions you're going to propose. If I think that you are hardwired for aggression because human beings uh, genetically and physiologically hormonally um, have an anger response uh, to any kind of threat, then I will approach you from the standpoint, either, either a standpoint of, uh, it's hopeless to change you, so let's just create cultural controls like prisons and that sort of thing, where I will approach you medically. Say, let me find a drug which can calm you down and basically minister to physiologically. The interpretive grid controls description, it controls implications, and, uh, and it's that place where we as Christians have the opportunity to engage our culture's belief systems, because we can we can interact with the presuppositions, and we can we can engage in what 
out what I call it at the end. We can engage in the reinterpretive task. The reinterpretive task is basically looking here and taking apart what that, that, that framework, that systematic understanding, and putting a different spin on it. So I'm able to, to, to play with our metaphor to come and say, look, those things that you see about tree bark and about sap, they make better sense if you understand those things as elephants. And in fact, if you understand it as elephants, you can also explain these things that you never could explain in your theory, like why the sap, so-called, jets out rhythmically, and why the tree trunks up and move around every now and again. See, to understand the human being as, a, as an elephant, it's, gonna re it's, it's what turns inside out, upside down, reinterprets the whole way you see things. Um, you've thought that, that if you had rotten parents, you're going to be a rotten person. Well, let's look at the fact that there are people who had rotten parents who turned out to be good people, and there are people who had, who had, who had very good parents who turned out to be rotten people. Let's just, let's play. Let's take the blinkers off. Let's take the distorting effect off. Let's, let's uh, in a certain sense, appreciate the magnifying effect and yet put a different paradigm, a different spin on what it is that you're seeing uh, there. That kind of reinterpretive task I see is at the heart of the encounter, the apologetic encounter, the, ultimately the evangelistic encounter with people who have been psychologized. And uh, the, uh, we want to... Uh, I, I listed on the bottom of the page uh, just a number of articles that you might find interesting to follow through on that. Those articles are, each of them in their own way, is meant to engage something that is hot in our culture, coming out of the pop psychologies or, or the more formal psychologies, and is seeking to put a different spin on it, making those facts, quote unquote, those those uh, the things that people describe, care about, putting it in a completely different world of a uh, uh, completely different intellectual system. Let me just give. I'll do this in closing here. A very small example of this, and uh, and pick the example of, of low self-esteem. Um, <clears throat> real typical scenario um, that would be described situation unpleasable parents okay reaction low self-esteem and all the all the uh, attendant behaviors and, and so forth uh, to, uh, uh, jumping through hoops to try get them to like me. Um, uh, perhaps I, uh, perhaps I'm, I'm sexually immoral, or, or maybe I, I use uh, food in some uh, very self-destructive way. Somehow trying to, to get the sense of feeling good about myself, or get some sense of affirmation, uh, wanting affirmation. You know, these parents were capricious. They were manipulative. Uh, perhaps they were violent. Perhaps they betrayed trust. And here I am, just stuck in this uh, massive failure and guilt and trying to please these people and never works and acting out in all these different ways and generally just unhappy and, and confused and a mess. Yeah. So our culture looks at that and it says, well, um, low self-esteem is the problem. Let me try to create high self-esteem. Let me try to boost the person's self-esteem, give them a good sense of self-esteem. And so what gets introduced is a new situation situation prime, if you will. This situation is an all-pleasable therapist. 
where the one, you might say, the one cardinal rule of the psychotherapy is, I will accept you. In Carl Rogers' words, unconditional positive regard. Just a, a fundamental attitude of, of affirmation, validation. I'm for you. I don't judge you. I'm not going to try to change you. I just accept you. Just a warm, beaming kind of, uh, of uh, approach. And let's say one of the things going on with this, in, in this person is that um, I only make uh, $50,000 a year, and I'm an RN, and um, one of the things my parents wanted me, they wanted me to be an MD, and they wanted me to make 100000 and one of the things I'm, sort of the value system, I'm, and I'm striving for that, and I never attained it, and one of the things that this all-pleasable therapist tells me is that, you know, it's okay if you only make 50000 and you're only a physician, an RN. Uh, that's okay, that's valid, you're yourself. And, and trust yourself, and affirm yourself, and be content with who you are. And so there's, there's a, in a sense, there's a certain, I would call it a counterfeit of love, and there's a certain counterfeit of truth. And it's, but it, but it tends to, those things ring the bells of this person. And so as this person, uh, who's just been miserable and depressed and jumping through hoops and always trying to please people and full of, full of social fears and anxieties and. Uh, uh, and, and wondering if people like them, and always on tender hooks, and perhaps uh, snappish and easily angry, and, and taking offense really easily, and always feeling like somebody's out to get them, maybe even a little bit paranoid, and, and you know, all these things. Suddenly, we're in a new situation, and that situation goes to work on me, and it tells me, you know, you don't need to please your parents. You're valid as you are. You're basically okay as you are. You can accept yourself. I accept you. The other people in the support group accept you. You can see how that, as that works on the person, you're going to see symptomatic relief take place in the person's life. The person is going to feel better. The person is perhaps going to be less uh, compulsive about food or sex. Um, the person is going to develop some sense of contentment. Uh, maybe they start to become less jumpy about whether they're going to be accepted. They become more confident. A little more, you know, increased self-confidence that uh, in social situations, uh, less easily angry, uh, less anxious. Yeah. We look at it and we say, well, many people find this extremely plausible. It's an ex extremely plausible apologetic for then, let's be Rogerians. You know? Let's give people love and give them realistic standards to attain, and that's all they need. Um, very plausible apologetic that gets made back towards us and gets made towards the culture at large. What do we as Christians do as we look at this? Well, some of our fundamental categories tell us, for example, that yes, we live in we live in in situations. Those situations have, you know, value systems in them, and the world is seeking to shape us. And there are ways we are sinned against by others. And then our our system also tells us that that our reactions, our behavior, and emotions come from somewhere. And, and biblically, we're given vast treasures for understanding human motives in a God-centered fashion. So, for example, we might say about this person that there is a theme in this person's life the Bible would call the fear of man that is basically, I crave my parents' approval. And if I can't get theirs, I'll try to get it from someone else. If I have to sleep with them to get it, I'll do it. Or if I can't get it, I'll just stuff food in my mouth to fill the void. Or you know, there's something, 
that I crave their approval. I'm oriented towards what those people think of me. And it never works because I, I'm living to please them and they're unpleasable and I'm a wreck. I'm a nervous wreck there. And I'm also, I've got these, uh, something maybe the Bible would put in the category of pride. Um, I'm, I'm seeking to define in some way success or righteousness or something which is going to make my life worthwhile. And I think that if I'm a doctor and I make 100000 a year, I'm a success. I've made it. I'm, I'm serving this impossible standard. And if I can't be that, I'm a failure. Well, from a biblical point of view, these reactions make perfect sense, not as products of a rotten situation, but as existing at the interaction between a situation with its stresses and a heart that, in, that engages that situation and produces all this stuff. These things come out of a heart, ruled by fear of man, ruled by pride. And here's where our, our analysis gets very radical. We then look at the supposed therapeutic success here, and we say, you know what? I can grant you a certain symptomatic relief, but you know what? It is absolutely unchanged at the level of motive. This person is still a man-fearer. They still live in terms of human approval. All that has happened is that they have changed the object of who they're looking to. So instead of looking to unpleasable parents, and hence being a nervous wreck, I now look to an all-pleasable therapist or an all-pleasable support group. Well, no wonder I feel better. You might say that my idolatry has been rehabilitated. My idolatry, which made my life miserable, it now works for me. because I And, and now I'm going to go through my life and I'm going to look for nourishing people. And I'm going to avoid some of these, you know, this kind of people. I'm going to look for these kind of people. I feel better about myself. I am uh, do spend less time uh, uh, doing destructive behaviors. I spend less time comparing myself. And also, this pride and defining myself in terms of my accomplishments. Well, I've now rejigged the standards. So now I've made those to be attainable. So now I really do think. If I'm an RN and I do a good job in that and I make $50,000 a year, I'm okay. That's a fine kind of person to be. We look at this biblically and we say, this person has just been tricked. At the deep, deepest analysis, they feel better. But where in this, where in this equation is the true transformation of their, of their life? For example, are these things even goals worthy of a biblical person? Is that, is that where, where is love? Where is joy? Where is gratitude? Where is obedience? Where's the willingness to sacrifice? Where's the courage to actually love your enemies in ways that are both merciful and yet tough-minded? Where's all the good stuff about what human life is meant to be in Jesus' image? This is not the image of Christ. You know? Feel better about yourself, kind of content, I'm okay, growing self-confidence. This is a pitiful standard to aim for, isn't it? Just, uh, there's much higher things to aim for, and in fact, these things come where someone's heart has been renewed. And if the fear of man that lays a snare is replaced with he who trusts the Lord is safe, and if pride is replaced with humility that makes it our aim to please him, it gets a whole new set of goals that is reoriented by the gospel. I mean, this is a person that has a new heart. This is a person that has new values. This is a person that has new priorities. This is a person who has a new God. And what has essentially happened, even in successful quote-unquote psychotherapy, is the rehabilitation of the old gods, not the giving of a new god, who is the one living and true god. 
See, we as Christians can come at, and this is just one tiny, you know, throwaway 10-minute example of the kind of thing that it seems to me we as Christians can come at our world, look at what it's looking at, look at all the details, you know, all these details about how this person feels and thinks and acts and how sex fits in and food and anger and anxiety and escapism and about the parents. And we're also looking at the supposed solutions. We take that apart in just as much detail and we just throw this paradigm spin on it. You know, we turn it upside down, inside out, backwards. We reinterpret it in a radical fashion. My experience has been this sort of thing just carries the freight. You know, we, we deal with psychologized people all the time. I, and, uh, Few of the, probably few of them actually are psychologists. You know, the writers of books or the teachers. Most of them are just people that sit next to you in church. People that, you know, are, are worried about the fact that they, uh, you know, they've got low self-esteem, or they're worried about the fact that they've got a sexual addiction, or they're worried about the fact they can't control food. And people who often drink in the psychobabble of our age. These are people we can reach. And in giving a better, deeper, richer interpretation. We have the potential to both edify the church, bring about conv- ongoing conversion of the of the richness and wisdom of the church, as well as opportunities to then challenge the secular world, engage it, and do the same thing. Throw the paradigm shift at them that makes sense of the very things that they see and care about. They call it bark, we call it skin. You know, they call it they call it sap, we call it blood. They you know, right on down the line, and we have a more radical analysis of the problem, because it's a problem between you and God, and a wonderful solution because we have a Savior who bore the wrath of God on our behalf, and who gives the Holy Spirit to change us. All in a nutshell, obviously, there's much we can talk about. Physiological things are a um, really valid area to explore and push. I think that there's going to be a big difference, just as looking at uh, cultural experiences. You know, I mean that. The fact, what's it like to grow up in a materialistic culture? You know, more sociological analyses. There's, there's many areas that are valid areas to explore as long as we don't adopt them as our fundamental explanatory paradigm. And even with someone who has severe physiological problems, that person is still in the image of God. And that person is still facing moral issues which they can grapple with. You know, that person, even with Alzheimer's, does not need to just be mean and nasty and never be challenged about repentance and seeking forgiveness, that sort of thing. So we want to we want to grant, we want to be interested in in physiological factors, and yet we don't want to grant them a controlling status over the moral responses of the human being. Um, physiological things would be part of the situation, and physiological issues, um, they, physio- even if it's just something as simple as allergies, you know, or PMS, or you know, where your hormones are off, or Physiological issues always bring at least three, uh, there's three kinds of, of, quote, spiritual issues that come to play. One, how do I react to the temptations created by that? You know, if I, like I get allergies every August, seasonal allergies, and I know that I'm more prone to be irritable during that time. Does that mean the allergies cause the sins of irritability? And I say no, but they create conditions of temptation where if, my, if I'm going to sin by irritability, it's a whole lot easier to come out. Uh, what, how is it that the person re- reacts to their particular physiological constraints? Um, second one is, conceivably, the physiological problem is a product of spiritual sorts of issues. Um, you know, there's many, many physical problems are, are uh, ultimately psychosomatic. You, know? you talk to any doctor, whether they say 60 to 75% of what a GP sees are psychosomatic. What's he saying by that? 
He's basically saying these are issues that are in that heartland of where a person's anxiety or anger or bitterness or immorality or guilt is causing a physiological problem. And the third thing that often happens is a physiological problem. Uh, many times it can put you on the shelf in a sense and make you get more honest about, well, where am I? You know, it may have nothing to do with the illness per se, but the illness gives you a chance to reflect more widely on what am I living for? You know, are there sins in my life? Is, are there things that uh, I don't have time to stop and think about? Um, so we want to be maximally interested in physiological issues and not yet not finally uh, buy into a paradigm which makes them determinative of what are fundamentally moral covenantal responses. That's an awfully big question <laughs> to ask in a little one-hour talk. But uh, there's, a, there's actually a whole course there at Westminster on physiology taught by Ed Welch but, uh, that would deal in uh, a lot of depth with that. Um, my nutshell answer is there may well be I'd have no problem at all if there were some prove some genetic component, say, say tied to manic depression. You know, but here's how I'd, I'd come at it and then say, um, all that would mean is that if that person is going to crack up, they're going to crack up by going on cycles high and high and low. Whereas if I cracked up, it may be by becoming depressed. And like I don't think I'll ever be manic in my entire life. You know, I just I was just hatched mellow. You know. I can, t I can tend to be brooding or in, you know, turn inward and that kind of thing. There may be some physiological thing. I, mean, I was always that way. I came out of my mother's womb, not very excitable, you know, more, more, more mellow and sort of slightly on the down end. There, there may be something genetic and all that. But here's here's the, one of the things that really, well, one of those defining moments for me. Um, I, I've known a lot of, I, I worked in it, as I said, in a psychiatric hospital for a number of years. I've known a lot of manic depressives. And I've known more since, since I've been a biblical counselor. Their manic episodes happen not in a, va in a vacuum, like a bolt out of the blue. They happen in response to life situations, typically. You know, nine out of ten. You know. Maybe there's some rare one where it's purely physiological. But I remember that after I was converted and got involved in biblical counseling, the very first manic depressive that I ever counseled, he was, he was classic, you know, textbook case. And he'd had three manic episodes in his life and then three big crashes afterwards. And listen to these set of facts. The first manic episode was one week after he was married. The second one was one week after the birth of his first child. And the third one was one week after the birth of his second child. Now you look at that and you say, this is not the same thing as a true disease, is it? You know, this is, there's some situational component going on here. And what was so clear, just in getting to know him, Again, whatever, granted whatever physiological predispositions there are, this was a guy that was highly controlling and, and loved his pleasure and hassle-free life. His cravings, the lusts of his flesh, were all oriented towards, I want to control my world and have no hassles. Well, wives and babies really rock your agenda. And this guy had cracked up three times, and he was psycho, and yet... It's, it's not as though he was by that, even by whatever physiological thing may be proved to have been there, it's not as though that was somehow excluded from him as a moral responder who has a way that he, he interprets life which is godless as fundamentally serving the flesh. I think the other defining moment for me, again, early on in my counseling uh, career was paranoid schizophrenic, fruity as the day is long. You know? He walked and he was tricked to come see me. He didn't want to be there uh, he finally agreed that he'd talk to me for an hour, and uh, so I figured. So I, I violated every rule of 
counseling to because I, I figured okay I've got an hour I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to to stake everything on one roll of the dice. So what I basically decided in my mind was I'll let him talk for half an hour and just get to know him, and then I'm gonna go for everything all at once. And uh, so I let him talk for half an hour, just interact, ask questions, and he was crazy. He he thought that the radio was Cat Stevens was writing songs about him and uh, that there were people out to get him and the FBI was was trailing him and there were people at work they were in a conspiracy against him and and he thought that he was the a kind of messiah figure who had been given a great revelation by God he was supposed to be the new Martin Luther and nobody appreciated it and everybody was trying to sabotage him and the guy was crazed you know he's good old classic paranoid schizophrenic so he's babbling away and about halfway in I think okay so I stopped him I said do you mind if I give you some feedback I said, sure I mean, he's still a human being. You can you can talk to crazy people. They're just people. Do you mind if I give you some feedback? And and and, and here's you know in a nutshell what I said. I've known a lot of paranoid schizophrenics in my life. It helps to have because I have. You know, it's one of the advantages of all this exper life experience. I've known a lot of paranoid schizophrenics. And there's two things I've seen in every one. Two main problems. One, they're incredibly grandiose. They're the center of the world. Everything hinges on them. And two, they're terrified. Because if you have to be the center of the world, and the world doesn't play ball, they're all out to get you. And that, and I just probably spent three or four minutes just talking about what is paranoia? After all, it's grandiosity and terror. It's something that, it, is that such an unusual sin? It's not really. Every one of us is like that. It's the nature of sin, in fact, to be self-exalting and terrified, you know? hiding and, and self-exaltation. So he is extreme in the degree of his symptoms. But he has not become another kind of creature from me or you. you know? No temptation has overtaken us. It's not common at all. So I talked about that for a while. And then I, and then I said, uh, the only hope is if there's someone who can help you from outside your system. Because your own system is so airtight and it's so destructive. You need help from the outside. And I just, I, I, t I pulled 50, Isaiah 53, 6. You know, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each to our own way. I just talked some. I drew that back to what we just been speaking of about his life, and then the second half: the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, and there is a Savior who is big enough for people who are just trapped in their grandiosity and their terror, and just and, and shared the gospel with him. Well, that probably took seven or eight minutes. Now, this is a guy that has been crazy for a half hour. He's been in a mental hospital, and you know, brought from it by his family. You know what his next words were? That's really interesting. Can you tell me more about it? We had a conversation as normal as you or I, you know, for the next hour, and and just talked about the implications of what his sin was, and and who Christ was, and how it worked, and uh, it, you know what it, what it led to. Then, what the craziness was gone. Now, why? I, I don't know totally. Is there a physiological thing that lies behind quote paranoid schizophrenia? I don't know. Maybe, but is what he's doing? grandiose and full of terror and full of lies? Yes, it is. That means I, as a Christian, can interact with him about real issues. And by the grace of God, you know, I mean, obviously we don't make anybody ever listen to us. By the grace of God, this guy had ears to hear. And it led to a, a number of months of counseling and discipleship, and finally, he's coming from a distance, finally getting him plugged back into his, uh, his local church. The guy proved to be something very different from what it looked on the surface. So those kinds of things have been, they've really... Those experiences early on just gave such confidence that that the biblical analysis of human life cuts deep 
You know, it's not trite, it's not pet answers, it's not simplistic. It cuts deep into the real issues in people. And then that sort of thing also started to feed back, even in thinking back on my pre-Christian experience when I was working in the mental hospital. And I realized things like, you know, our hospital took a medical model in theory of, of uh, mental illness. But in reality, once you got people in a floor, in a small group, in psychotherapy, it took a moral model. Because a medical model is ultimately completely depressing. And you cannot have 25 patients and 10 staff members live together if there's not a moral structure. And so people would be dealt with as morally responsible. You know? And so if you hit people, you got in trouble. And if you cursed and said crazy things, you got rebuked. And if you, even there, there's an inconsistency even in those who would try to implement a moral, a, a medical model, because human beings are moral. And any, any system of psychotherapy is moral. It's giving people a worldview. It's trying to change how they think, how they react, what they want, how they behave, how they choose. And uh, um, the other th- another thing that, that, that dawned on me reflecting back was I can remember the absolutely craziest people that I ever knew. And there's this one guy, Stuart, that would just literally pace like hour after hour, just swinging his hands and babbling and, just sh- and shouting periodically and just nonsense, just nonsense. And yet... Every so often, you could, you could like, get through to him. And I can remember a couple of times having conversations with this man, in very normal conversations. And then um, a nurse would come in and say, Stuart, it's time for you to get ready to go to your job. And he'd start to babble. Or, Stuart, your parents are, are coming to visit you. And he'd go nuts. He'd start to babble. And just you know, as I pieced it together and what I knew of him, this is a guy who hates his parents, He's got bitterness at them. He's angry. Now, are those, you know, medical issues? No, those are moral issues. And he's a guy who is profoundly lazy, you know, who really wants to cop out on life, and he's copped out on everything his whole life. And he has used, right from the time he was a little child, anytime he didn't want to do anything or life was hard, he would do weird things. And so here's a guy, he's 25 years old. He's a, he's a, he's a lunatic. And yet, there are moments that reveal that that lunacy is in some fundamental way connected to what are moral issues. Very common things that I can identify with: the lassitude, bitterness, escapism, and so forth. Yeah, my my response, and again, we could talk at depth, and so it's a quick response. But um, I think I think we as Christians can say much more than it's wrong, it's of the devil, it's it stinks, it's heresy, and that there may be a certain limited value in just being purely polemical. But ultimately, if you're purely polemical, it's preaching to the choir. And you're going to create a fortress mentality of, in a sense, the elect who are insulating themselves from all the ugly things out there in the world. Whereas I think if we're actually to reach our world, both the Christians who buy into psychology as well as the non-Christians, we have to have some kind of more assertive, positive methodology, a reinterpretive agenda that goes at life and turns it upside down and inside out. Um, so something of that, that reinterpreta- reinterpretive task I see is a... Uh, is real needed, else we become sort of fortress mentality, separatistic, self-righteous, triumphalistic. Um, second thing, on the other side, the, uh, the bowing down. Um, the, I, sometimes that is, that, it can almost be hysterical. I, I can remember one time um, talking to a man and his wife. Uh, it was myself and two other elders, and this man was really mistreating his family. He was stubborn. He was angry, irritable, irascible, easily provoked, very selfish. 
And one of the elders has really taken him to task, very lovingly but straightforward, just calling him for what he was. And about and the guy was just sitting there like a lump. The wife was was the wife was there, and she seemed half asleep. And she and which was a, I can remember being a little bit curious, like I would think she'd be really engaged here because here the elders doing her dirty work for her, you know, trying to take her husband to task. She's half asleep. Finally, the elder, you know, getting no response, he made a comment. He said, uh, "I mean, your life is just such a dysfunctional life." He used the, the D word, you know, the, uh, this is like late 80s, so. That woman, it was like she got an electric jolt. She sat up and she, she went, could you say more about what you mean about my husband's dysfunctional? I looked at, I, I, I probably jumped out the window at that point because, I mean, the word dysfunctional just means it doesn't work. You know? Here for 20 minutes, the elder's been laying out in detail how it doesn't work. And yet, suddenly the word dysfunctional got used. And I was like, ooh, you know? Suddenly a really meaningful word has come on the, on the stage here. You know? Now we're talking about, uh, now we're talking deep, you know, in reality. Yeah. So that, I mean, if our, if our car mechanic, if you took your car in and he looks under the hood and comes back and he shakes his head, man, you've got a dysfunctional engine. Say, well, I know it's dysfunctional, that's why I brought it in, but yeah, I mean, what's wrong with it? You know, is it the carburetor, is it the radiator? I mean, what is it? It's a dysfunctional engine. I mean, you go see another mechanic, you know, because you want details. And the Bible gives us details on what's wrong. Now, how you help those people, um, some of it is going to be just long-term patient ministry, public ministry, teaching ministry. It just basically seeks to help people think in a biblical world, um, debunk the stereotypes, help people not, let's help people not get the pat answer, you know, doctrinalistic, moralistic, pietistic, demonistic, uh, debunking that stuff, you know, whether it's the illustrations, the applications, now, let's say more in application, just have your quiet time or, you know, give it to Jesus. I mean, nothing wrong with having your quiet time, give it to Jesus, right? I mean, there's true piety but, uh, and true morals, but the preaching can give people a different worldview, um, teaching, recommending good books, and then ultimately, I think this whole reinterpretive task can simply make more sense for people than the bogus wares that the world offers. You know? I remember... I can remember many occasions with counselees have come in. Maybe they have a Minerth Meyer book in their purse, and uh, you know, it's just it was basically just re-re-re-jigging re, the secular stuff with a mild gloss of scripture occasionally. And uh, and yet, if this person's a Christian, um, they're going to thrive on the truth. I've just seen so many people come in and they they walk in, they're thinking purely psychologically. Basically, they're a victim. Their needs weren't met, and just by good engagement with them, teaching that's timely and hits the need. You know, an hour later they're leaving, realizing, yeah, you know, I'd always thought of it as this empty love tank of that I needed love somehow and my parents didn't give it to me. I never thought about it that, yeah, I actually walk around through life craving people's approval. And that has these profound, like Psalm and Proverbs 29:25. It, the fear of man, living for what people think of you, it does lay a snare. And I understand the snares I get into and I see how my anxiety or my approaching a new situation, kind of looking out of the lattice, like, what are they going to think of me? And yeah, and I walk into that, that, that college and career group, and I'm comparing myself to people, and I'm wondering what people think of me, and all that waste of energy that's growing out of my, my lust for people to like me. And yes, and I see how the gospel engages that. Oftentimes, that kind of just, what's really basic teaching, biblically, is like, it's like the dimmer switch going on in a dark room. And life just makes a whole lot more sense.